RDT Systems, baby. Dog tested and dog tough. We've got those soft mouth dummies. Now listen, everybody knows that we need more bumpers. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire. I like using white or black and white bumpers when I'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds. You can get the orange ones. I dig it. But add a bunch to your repertoire. And I'm again, I'm not talking about three to six. If you're working on T pattern, if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds, you need a bunch, a dozen, 18. The Soft Mouth Dummies by DT can't be beat. Check them out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. DT Difference. Let's go. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when shh, it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. Have you wondered if you want to force fetch your dog? Maybe you think your dog's too soft. Maybe you're too nervous to screw, quote unquote, screw your dog up. Let me help you. I built a start to finish course with different dogs, different breeds, and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy. Jump in. Links in the description. We'd be happy to help you. Let's go. Let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season. This is one of the hardest things that I've ever tried to do as an amateur, surrounded by very good pros and a client of a very good pro. It's one of the most demanding things I've ever done. If I could describe it for an amateur, I would say it's one of the few things that you do that the more you know or the more you learn, the more you figure out how little you know, if that makes sense, the, the less you really know, or the more you understand that my knowledge of this sport is so small. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I always appreciate it. We've got a fun episode up ahead. The guys from Barrows, the whistle that I've been using for probably over a year now, I would imagine. It's got to be close to it. Um, you might have seen it in pictures and videos on the old Instagrams and YouTubes. But Michael and McGee are with us from Barrows. Hey, guys. Tell everybody. Each will have uh, – Michael, you go first. So I'm, I'm Michael Wallace. I'm an amateur trainer. Met Bob several years ago down in Sherall. We were running some stuff down there, and I bumped into him and started a friendship and continued on with dogs. And McGee and I, uh, who you'll meet, he's the – He's the business mind. Started a whistle company, and and we had we were disappointed in the whistles that we were getting. So uh, you get one that sounded good, one that sounded terrible, and they were the same whistle. And we were trying to get a little more consistency out of him. He was at Elon, and I think we met at the Master National one year. Bob McGee and I did, and struck up a friendship. And and he was passionate about these whistles, and did a lot of homework and. Here we are. We've sold a bunch of them and gave a bunch away, and some of the pros are using them. And we're, it's been it's been good so far for us. Met a lot of nice people associated with this. Where are you from, Michael? Originally, right in the middle of North Carolina in Alamance County. I live about three miles from where I was born, Bob. So, right, right in Alamance County, right in the Piedmont of North Carolina. There you go. Very good. All right, Mister McGee. Yeah, I'm McGee Porter, so I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina, and kind of got into retrievers when I was in college, bought a dog I just wanted to hunt with, and and being somewhat of a perfectionist, I picked them up from a trainer after a few months and started to try and continue to train them and went and ran a hunt test with uh, Haley McKeithen. Ended up at dinner with Michael, and that's where I met him. Come to find out, he lived in Elon, which is where I was at school at the time, and joined a training group and got got really into it there for a while and when COVID was happening spent a lot of time out there training and learning the game and developed a real passion for for training dogs and retrievers and breaking into the field trial game a little bit and have have enjoyed it all good for you you. and so you're both North Carolina random 
meetup turned into a whistle company? Yeah, down in Sherall, Bob. We were down there for the Master National. Met uh, McGee down there, and he actually lived about four miles from me, and I didn't know it. That's cool. So that would have been the 2019 Nationals, right? If that's the one that was in Sherall, yeah. that's right. Yeah, there was 2015, 2019, I believe. Very good. The last one in Sherall. It's got to be night. Yeah, I think so. I'm not good at math. It doesn't seem that long ago, but it was. It's mm, hard to believe, isn't it? It is. McGee, first dog. Tell me about him. When I went looking for a dog, I didn't even know I wanted a retriever, honestly, and figured if I was going to get one and be in school and as active of a lifestyle as I got, I said, I need one that's going to do something for me. So I bought a dog just to hunt. Sent him to a, found a trainer down the road, didn't know anything about anything. Sent him there, just picked him up, went out there once a week, worked him a little bit. And and after I, I think he left him at the trainer for seven months and picked him up and said, well, I enjoyed working my dog. It's fun to have him around, hunted with him that year, killed a bunch. He watched him pick up a bunch of ducks, but knew he wasn't at, I'd learned enough at that point to know he wasn't considered a finished dog. And I said, well, I'm going to get him to finish. I want to start running some of these hunt tests with them. It seems like a good time. I think first hunt test I ran was a, was a started hunt HRC test. And I went down to Sherall and did that. And I was, met a bunch of people and I was like, you know, it's pretty fun. I enjoyed doing that. And, and that's where this kind of all went for me as I said, I want to get him to the finished dog and go, go run the run, finish test, run master hunt tests and everything. And after I met Michael, I started training with a good group of guys out at our retriever club in Mebane and got really involved with that. Learned that the dog I had wasn't trained at all. So <laughs> went, went back to the basics was everything. And, and guy, Tony, our friend, he, he kind of went through and taught me how to, how to train a dog. Gave me a hand, course on it. Stein's handler needs a bunch of training too, Bob. So that, both yeah. of them need training. We all do, right? <laughs> there, there's no, there's no denying that one. So, got got into running hunt tests and built my dog up and was running them at a master level. And next thing you knew, I kind of learned about these this field trial stuff. And I, yeah, I didn't think my dog had that in him. And we were out there training one day to a 400 yard mark, and I was like, maybe he does. And, Got into the derbies pretty pretty heavy, and so Michael and I, he had a dog, Macha, that was the same age as my dog, and we started running derbies together and really just enjoyed it. I mean, we had a – I think the derbies of, – I've run the cues and hunt tests and derbies. I think the derbies were the most enjoyable thing that I did. That's super cool. So what is this dog's name? Is it still the only it's, dog you own? It's still the only dog I own. His name's Stein. I'd love to have another. I don't know what I would do with another right now. Besides feed it money. But it yeah, it's still he's five now. He's still the only dog I own. He he's been all over with me. He's done it all. Very cool. Very so. cool. All right, Mike, I'm gonna ask you the same question. Now, what dog I, let me back up because I'm sure you got more than one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's my ask wife, him a my number. He doesn't around know. the corner. So Bob, I, I always say I have the dogs that I have. You yeah. know, that's my answer typically. But what got yeah, you? So, what what was your first dog, and what got you into you know where you are now? Yeah. So my son got into duck hunting, and I was always the dog guy, and I came up running dogs. You know, I had a come from the running dog world, and we deer hunted here with dogs, and that's all I knew. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know till I was on up that people actually sit in tree stands to hunt deer. You know, I thought if you, you hunted them with a pack of hounds and that was, you know, that was the way everybody did it. I started into the fox hunting community and started running field trials, fox hunting field trials. And it was, it was fun. I had a lot of fun, but it was a wild west and up all night and, you know, had to have 20 or 30 Bob to, to be competitive and, and kids were getting you know, kids were getting older. Uh, go ahead, Bob. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm just listening. You had 20 or 30 of them? Yeah. So fox hunting in the field trial world, you had to have a bunch. And and when they were three years old, they were old dogs. Wow. You know, so anyhow, kids were getting older. They were playing ball. My little girl was in cheerleading and some was playing baseball. My other, oldest son was off at college. And I said, I, 
you know, I need another dog, but I need to do it in a little more civilized manner. So bought a Boykin. I got my start on antidepressants right right away after I got no I'm joking to all the Boykin people I'm just messing around but met a lot of nice folks you know through the Boykin with Blaine those guys down in Georgia and met a lot of cool cool people and my son was actually playing ball with Tony Hartnett's son and over at the high school and I'd asked Tony about I said, well, you train my little dog for me. We want a dog to duck hunt with. And uh, he said, yeah. So I figured out the time I was taking her over there and took her over there and I handed her, I had her in my lap and I just handed her over to Tony. And he said, uh, well, where's the rest of her? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I saw some other dogs there and he had a black male named Gator that he was probably eight months old then that I just fell in love with. And I said, man, I love this bo- Boykin, but I really want to go fast like that black dog goes. And bought the male for my son and he went off to college and I begged him not to take that dog because I'd fallen in love with him. And just my best friend in the world, you know, is that dog. And since then, I got more into wanting to be a little more competitive. So I had Macho and and then I bought a male from Leon Stepanian out of his Betty bitch that was, you know, everybody knows Black Betty. So I bought with the intent that, you know, like a responsible breeder would do, Leon had asked me, so Michael, what you going to do with the dog? And I said, I want to run field trials. And he said, are you a field trialer? And I said, no. And he said, well, we're just selling these to field trial homes. And I said, Miss Leon, I don't know how to do it without the right dog. And he said, well, you got a good point. So he ended up selling me the puppy with the intent that I took him to Jason. And oh. so I've, I've been a client of Jason Baker's ever since. Him and Colin Jordan, them down there. And Johnny, of course, Johnny Armstrong's down there. Those guys do a fantastic job. My, you know, they're like family to me. And I've got three down there with Jason and two or three here and I love traveling back and forth, and I got a pretty good group here. He's about four hours from me. So I, I go down, I stay a day or two, but but up here, man, I'm very blessed. I uh, got a good group um, that I train with here in, at Yakin River in Meb, and that's our club. And yep. Malcolm Sykes is in that group, and Carl Blackwell, and yeah, Monty French, and Robbie Draper, and we got a really good. You know, we've got a really good group that good dog men and guys that have been at it a long time. I didn't mean to leave anybody out if I did, but it's, uh, you know, you know, those names, they're competitors on the weekends. And I try to surround myself with people that's better than me. Yeah. You know, knows more than me anyway, Bob, but that's kind of where I am now. I got my first open win in 22. Congratulations. Uh, with a, with a male, uh, out of Frank and Rita Jones is breeding down there. He's, uh. He's by Clooney and Chrome, um, and he's chocolate factored. I'm going to throw my points all in there, Bob, if anybody wants to call me <laughs> about him. But, yeah, he's a nice, he's a nice animal. But, I've, man, I've, uh, I can't imagine not having this sport now that I've, that I've fallen in love with it. And uh, there's just – there's no um, – there's – this is one of the hardest things that I've ever tried to do as an amateur surrounded by very good pros and a client of a very good pro. It's one of the most demanding things I've ever done. If I could describe it for an amateur, I would say it's one of the few things that you do that the more you know, or the more you learn, the more you figure out how little you know, if that makes sense, the the less you really know, or the more you understand that my knowledge of this sport is so small. Does that make sense, Bob, what I'm trying to say there? Makes sense, and that's why I started the podcast, man. It's like, what do they say? You know the things you know, you know the things you don't know, and you don't know what you don't know. And that would be, you know, part of the reason why I started the podcast is like, what a great platform to not only talk to buddies, and talk dogs and what I know, but then have on guys that I look up to, and you rattled off a bunch of them that will impart some of their knowledge where it's like, you bet your bottom dollar. I'm asking some of the questions for myself, you know, Yeah. talking to Pat Burns and Pat Nolan and Lyle. Another great couple, great examples there. 
Yeah, great examples of people that have been doing this longer, realistically longer than I've been alive. And and they're just, they've got ways to look at or to think outside of the box. And so it's also selfish, the reasons why I have the podcast. And so it's neat that you're surrounding yourself. Also the old adage of like, you surround yourself with five successful people, you're going to become the sixth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. So it's really cool. All right, McGee. And, and also, Bob, it, that I'm afforded luxury to a world class. Yeah. You know, and I that's that's the thing about finding a good training group is, you know, if you if you're like me, you say, well, I need to do this. I need to develop this property. I need to. You need to get in a good group. You do need to develop property for this sport. It's very important because we're losing property. But have your own property, but also have these other areas where you can go train. It ch- totally changes the dynamic of of confidence in dogs. Looking out there, I don't care where I'm at. I'm going to get that bird. That's right. You know, and you build them by exposing them to different elements. That was gonna. I was gonna segue into that in a minute, but since you brought it up, let's do it now. Let's For both it. of you, I'd like your opinions. As a McGee, you're a, a one dog man. Michael, you got many. Got the dogs I got. Got the dogs you got. <laughs> what are some of the challenges you face as it being a hobby, as it being your 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 passion? What are some of the challenges you you face? Yeah. You go first. I'll tell you right now, my biggest challenge for it is the the time commitment that it takes to put in it to be successful. When you get talking between field trials and hunt tests, if you want a good hunt test dog, I think if you go out there a few days a week, continue to work with the dog, and you have a dog that's already been through the steps that it takes to get there, you can achieve that. Um, but if you want to run field trials, and, and I'll tell you, of doing both i enjoy doing white coach stuff a lot more i love the competition side of things i'd rather beat somebody or lose to everybody than you know just get a ribbon for passing i think that's great but also i know my dog's got more in the tank than a master than a master test or something that you'll see in a hunt test it's just a time commitment of things just you gotta you know even if you're just running against amateurs the amateurs you're running against is people like Michael that are out there and they, they have the time to put into their dogs and consistently hammer them three, four or five days a week and run on the weekends and, and be able to make those dogs successful. I think, you know, the level of competition that once you step up to that white coat stuff and the dogs and the people that you're going against is so much, it's, it's so great that if you're not on top of your game, you're not you're not going to be successful in it and that that's the biggest thing for me and also with having one dog you know I, I got my dog to hunt originally and and my dog's gonna hunt and it's not necessarily you know in, any hunt you do with a dog loses um loses them up a lot in training um you, you know you might get a dog that starts breaking a little bit dog that's creeping not listening as well you know you got birds coming in the decoys and your dogs out there trying to run a blind and just breaks down and starts a big hunt when you're trying to work birds it loosens them up and i've I've kind of seen it with time is going on they don't forget I, I don't think my dog forgets what the training he has done but you can tell where they gotta be they got, he's got to flip that switch in his mind if he's going to go out there and play the game and then go sit in a duck blind i remember back I don't know how old you are, but I remember back in the day with my one dog and like now I almost can't even imagine not doing it for a living and still being able to accomplish high level work Mm -hmm. because a lot of times you're leaving for work before the sun comes up and a lot of times you're getting home after the sun goes down or you've got 40 minutes and a 15 minute drive to the training grounds. And I remember that being like a real push for me to get my dog to where he needed to be and then you know maybe two days a week you've got other things after work that you can't get to train in and all of a sudden you let things slide and I remember that being a big challenge but but I loved it so much I made room and time for it and let other things slip probably like my sales jobs but that's okay Uh, (laughs) I I, I did the same thing when I was in college I said this is 
training retrievers is a whole lot more fun than sitting in class learning philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. That, bud. That's a good philosophy to have. So you know, yeah. Michael, what do you think some of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome an amateur? Yeah, I guess it's, you know, to me, it's the, it's not just the knowledge. It's the knowledge that you need. Let me, let me think about how I want to say this, Bob. It's not just the knowledge. It's you could read, you could read and understand one of these guys that are really good, you know, could write and they have, you know, there's all kind of training videos and stuff where, but with these retrievers, unlike other things that I've learned in the past, I'm not able to absorb it at a rate fast enough that this animal's able to learn. And and so meaning one of the biggest struggles for an amateur is learning how to completely train a retriever. You know, taking him from socialization, and that's something I've had. You know, socialization wasn't a big thing for running dogs. It is for these animals. And and the zero to six months window there that you have to socialize them before they're professionally trained or training starts to become formalized, whatever that looks like, or he goes to a trainer. One of the things is with multiple animals is taking a training philosophy and being able to apply it to different situations and that's one thing like you guys know i mean you do it day in you day out and if i didn't have experience standing on my shoulder saying well you just had problems with momentum don't correct there don't you know leave that alone and it's all and then the other day malcolm and i are standing out in the field talking and i said well you just said don't handle on the mark <laughs> and he said he said well i'm telling you now that here's why you do it and 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 we just sit in the field for an hour and talk about this. And it, it, that it's, it's, it's so hard to explain to other amateurs that are just getting into the sport, the, the knowledge that you need, whether you're, you know, whether you're hunt testing or whether you're field trialing or it, from taking that, Build, that critical window. Go ahead, Bob. Or even just building a basic duck dog. Yeah, 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 and which that's what we're doing anyway. From you know till he's a year old, it's it's All people the have their minds made up that mine's just going to be a duck dog, just going to be a meat dog. I'm only going to run hunt tests. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do whatever maximizes that animal's potential. That's that's kind of my mentality when I come through. And if it don't work, she goes and. So one last week that ends up being a duck dog for a kid down the road. And, and one of the hardest things I think is, is time. My first men, you know, the mentality that I had, I said, well, Bob, I'll just, I'm not competitive and I want to be. So I'll just buy a dozen of them and, and hit the field trial circuit and that don't work. So since I've scaled back, I've got three dogs here at home. I've got three down at Jason Baker's and, and the time I'm able to train here with the three dogs that they're not washouts. They were three that Jason thought would be the best for me to bring home. Fair enough. Uh, so the th three that are here, um, I train three, four times a week. Typically our groups get together and, and then when I'm able to go down to Georgia, you know, he winters in Georgia and summers in, in Michigan up in Onaway. So anytime that I'm able to get up there, you know, or get down there, and spend a few days just immersed into it, man. And round the campfires at night, just talking about dogs. And, uh, you know, Jason's big thing would be, you know, it, even though I'm starting to compile the information that all these different personalities are given to me, you know, most of the time, I'm still second guessing myself about do this wind, you know, should I have done this there? Should, you know, did I just correct on the line to the next bird? And, you know, all those thoughts running through your head. And, and a lot of times I'll say, is, I'll turn around and look at Jason and say, is that line good enough? And he said, if you had to ask me that, you already know it wasn't good enough. Right. You know, so it, it, the yeah. hardest thing for an amateur is, is, is starting to be an amateur. You know, I guess that would be my, you know, my stance at, 
yeah. starting to be an amateur, gaining the respect of your competitors by doing the right things at the line, in the holding blind, in the parking lot, at the hotel, on the internet, while you're talking to other people and names are coming up, learning to be that amateur that tries to be a fierce competitor, a loyal friend, somebody that earns the respect of their competitors and gets adopted into a society there that that is very rewarding if you do your part. Now, the first time you, with some of these guys, if you don't do what you say you're going to do, you're out of that group. And, and so I guess the, you know, I've talked in a circle here, but the, from starting to be an amateur until actually being in a solid training group that can help you learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of the time you don't develop those relationships without a relationship with a pro. So my advice to anybody buying a puppy, if you're buying one and it's field trial bread or it's hunt test bread or whatever it is, find out what pro if you don't know that that breeder recommends and ask around go train with them if the if the trainer says no nah, i really don't want you to come train with them get don't go to that guy yeah don't you come. know i get calls i get calls <laughs> from the bakers all the time and says come train man what are you doing you know we're training it's beautiful down here where are you at and you know if you if you bump into a trainer that says rather than you not come today don't don't go to that guy I agree with that. Lead. Mm, you thought I was going to say bismuth. I switched it up on you. Hey, get you and your buddies prepared for duck season, just like you're preparing your dog. Seven and a half by Kent. Go to the clay bird course. Go to sporting clay course. Get right so that you can knock more birds down with that bismuth this duck season. Hey, it's not only the food that fuels the truck of lone duck, but we also worry about that gut health. Sometimes the dogs get a little bit of rumbling in the tummies, and I like to help them out get all balanced with this product that Purina provides called Fortiflora. It's basically a probiotic, and you sprinkle a little bit of these pouches on the dog's food. So, for instance, if I'm driving to a hunt test and they're rattling around on the trailer, and you know, sometimes their stomachs can get a little upset from stress movement anything that four to floor can really help balance them out get them back to feeling good and get ready to run so check it out it's purina's four to flora boom i got a couple things to add to this that i think you were real eloquent on you were talking about you know looking over your shoulder and saying was that right was that timing right was that this that right wrong or indifferent and I think finesse is the word I use a lot. It's an art, not a science. It's not A plus B equals C. It's knowing when A plus B squeezes out an E and what does what do we do when that E happens because it didn't happen yesterday and or the dog's personality is different than the, the day before and why and, you know, you know, the anything can happen. And what do we do in that moment? Do we make a big deal out of it? Should we not make a big deal out of it and see if it happens again? You know, don't be too quick to correct or man, you really should have in that moment. Those are parts of the game that are all finesse. And I don't know why I do certain things sometimes. And I can't really describe why I did it. It just felt right. Because it probably worked for you before. And, and... Sure. But it's just when you feel it, it's like you mm -hmm. become so attuned to the animals that you're working with that you know what they're going to do you can see it before it happens and the more an amateur or a professional does it the more they can do it faster they can address it quicker they can mm -hmm. things slide and see how it plays out like maybe a dog's gut hunting well why is it gut hunting you know what why is it doing this <clears throat> might just let them do it so i can see what's going to happen and then address it later type of deal because you got, they got to make decisions. And, and again, it's just, to me, that's you, you, you worded it. And the word I would use is finesse and learning for a first time dog owner, maybe it's their second dog and this dog is different than their first. And so it's giving them different challenges. It's all about finesse game. The other thing I would ask you that I didn't, I'm surprised that neither of you brought up as a challenge for amateurs 
is getting new grounds. Mm. You know, we have the same soccer field. We, we train in the backyard. We go to grandpa and grandma's farm and that's it. And yeah. so get accustomed to those pieces of property. I would ask each of you how, and McGee, you go first, how you tackled finding land to build your duck dog that turned into a hunt test dog that turned into a child dog. So I, th- I think both, and I'll speak for Michael a little bit here, have been pretty fortunate with the land that we have to train. Because after I met Michael and started taking the sport a little bit more seriously and realized that, hey, he can be more than a duck dog, joined a retriever club that was 25, 30 minutes down the road for us. That yet? Um, Yakin River. Yep. Yeah, Yakin yeah, River. And then I, also we, we've been very fortunate where we've got Emporia that's two hours away, two hours north, and we got Sherall that's two hours south. So we'd be able to make trips during the week, just get a get a few guys together, get the group together and and go one way or the other and be able to train. And both of those properties are big properties that have a lot of different, you know, if you want water one day, if you want to run through trees or more brush, you you have the ability to kind of pick and choose what terrain you want to put your dogs on that day. And it, we've been very fortunate. To, I, I don't think that we've struggled much for having ground to be able to train on with where we're located. Yeah. You're definitely yeah. in the greatest places. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama are like the Mecca, you know, yeah. just you can hit six hours either direction and be in a phenomenal place. <laughs> and one of the things that I'm going to hit on for people to hear what you just said is you would get in your truck and drive two hours to go train. That takes real commitment and perseverance and like a want to make your dog better that the easy road would have been go to the soccer field again tonight. But instead, you're going to bust your butt and try and get to the ground so you can do something new and different. And it's it's a ride. And uh, a lot of the successful folks that train with me up north are the same. They'll come to me and it's a hour and 20 minute ride. They'll go mm-hmm. hour and 20 minute the other direction, hit up a different piece of property. They'll pay $150 to a different piece of property and use it for two days. Like the people who want to make themselves and their dogs better travel and and put them and their dogs in a position to see new places and be challenged so that that's one i would really wanted people to hear that was great i mean if you want to succeed i think that's what you have to do and it's well worth doing especially like our yak and river i mean we don't have we have a nice piece of we have nice grounds we've got a technical pond now we've got multiple ponds big pastures but and you got to be able to get creative with your training setups as well but a lot of times you go out there and it's, we've run this three times. Dogs sort of seeing the same thing. There's always something you can critique on it, but it's being able to put that dog in a new environment. So that when it does come to test day, your dog's more prepared for that situation. I know the first test, I, first few tests I ran, I kind of got out of the truck and grabbed my dog. And I'm used to a dog that was, I mean, he's high wired, but he had his wits about him. And I was like, I don't know what's gone wrong with him. I said he's out of control and and trying to trying to prepare for that situation more and give him more exposure. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, man. What about you, Michael? Yeah. So the 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 training grounds, I you know, we are very blessed with with I wouldn't say abundance of training grounds, but we've got a significant amount right around us. We do have yakking over there, and and you know I, I know McGee said you were making that a big deal about being a commitment to load up and drive two hours, and Bob, you had said you know that's a heck of a commitment, man. When this sport gets you and grabs you by the shirt collar, and 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 you, I'll load up and drive anywhere, you know if I think I can win or if it's a great place to train, I just that's the minimal commitment uh you know it we are very blessed to have have as many properties as we do to train on and i've made some relationships with pro trainers and amateurs and that have access to wonderful properties i mean properties that you just when you pull in the gate uh, you just stop there and look and say good lord you know this place is beautiful and he did all this for dogs and 
Um, I think of the areas up your way, Bob, that I've been to field trialing over the years and how gorgeous those properties are in the summer and or in the in the winter when summer when it's uh, when it's uh, you know blazing hot down here and we all go to Onaway and stay, you know usually I stay a couple weeks up there in the in the summer and usually I spend about a week down in Georgia uh, with Jason and them and and the ground is there there's still an abundant there's still a lot of good training properties out there. Of course, you're not going to have access to it if you don't go back to what I said originally. If you don't work at being the best amateur I can be, if you don't take our sport serious, if you don't go the extra mile, uh, agree to throw birds, you know, bring a piece of equipment to make things go faster, whatever. If you don't, if you don't plug in, you're you're probably not going to have access to ground or, you know, good training, good training days. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, determine a good training group between folks who know what they're talking about or who folks who think they know what they're talking about and are giving mm-hmm. first time dog guy or gal advice they shouldn't be? You know, how did you navigate those waters mm-hmm. early on where it's like, man, he's a super nice guy, but I just, I don't know. And, and then being able to get into groups that are more successful. How did you navigate those waters? Yeah, so I think getting with a respectable pro, like I like I said a little bit earlier, right from Jump Street, and and when you get a, let's say we'll call them a mediocre amateur. I'm not even in that category yet, Bob, but a mediocre amateur that has started learning and is giving you or giving a a newbie, a first time person, or for a new dog owner advice that contradicts training. A lot of times. You know, if if I can get involved in that conversation, I will contradict it. You know, I, I'm not just going to stand there and let it unfold. And if it if if I know that I'm right, if I don't, then I'm just going to keep it closed and and try to find out what was right and what was wrong. But you know, if if somebody were to say, "Why did you do that?" Let's say a correction out. You know, maybe. Maybe I got a little rough on her on the end in the red zone of a blind that took us across a couple pieces of water and and she did all the work and then got to the end acted like a turd. You know, maybe I got a little rough on her right there in that in that last little bit. And they said, Well, why did you why did you do that? And if I say, if I'm a client of a respectable pro and I said, Well, Jason Baker told me when this happens, do this. With this animal, when this happens, do this, then you know, they're really not going to do a lot of contradicting. So, like, you've got to have a pecking order. You've got to have, you've got to have somebody that gets the group together. You know, and that's the biggest thing. Robbie Draper's our guy. Constant communicating with each of us about sign up for group for Area One at Emporia, or we're going, we're going to Leon's, or we're going to Sherall, or you know, he's a. You got to have a good communicator. You got to have knowledge uh robbie's a a client of alan and hunters down at black river um monty french who's been a long time client of theirs um is is in our group george francis is in our group um and they all have properties of their own i have property out here um and you know as far as we hadn't had a new person in quite a while in our group but I'm kind of like the low man on the totem pole there, Bob. I, you know, I, I try to help where I can. That would, you know, be another piece of advice I would give to amateurs. Help where you can. If you've got a couple kids around the house, you can bring to throw birds, do that. And that'll be your contribution for these guys pouring in to you years and years and years of knowledge, yeah. you know, but your question was about what do you do? What not the question? What do you do when, when like how do you, somebody's giving you conflicting information or yeah like if i don't know jack and i show up and i bring my six-month-old black labrador mm. and i'm joining a retriever club or a group what are some like red flags that you would see to say like i mean i'm trying to bait you into the answer uh, yeah yeah so <laughs> what i'm saying like if i don't like yeah i get my saying like this guy's the guy i want to listen to and next to and talk to and these are the folks i'm going to just appreciate their conversation 
and like camaraderie and fellowship, but I'm going to f- listen to this guy. How do you determine that? Yeah. Well, it, it was predetermined in our group. Um, you know, th- these guys are well, re- the guys that I've mentioned, you know them all, and they're well-respected judges and members of the field trial community. So it was, that that was, I'm very fortunate to get in those groups, Bob, and, and you know that. You know how hard it is to break into groups like that, but a red flag would be for me is if a new guy come out and he got a chair. You know, if he was if he was there to really learn and soak it up, you learn the best from standing out there with a boom gun and a bird and watching these dogs how they come into the area and and where you throw it and why you throw it that way and is it flat? Is it angled back? Is it you know it, it all these throws and then when you get back up there and I t- I told the kid that bought the duck dog from me he's gonna make a duck dog of he said well you help me and I said absolutely. Thought you'd never ask. Here's when we train. Let me know the days you're going to be there, and you come and you throw birds. And and at the end, when we're done, you come up, get your dog, and we'll help you. Yeah. And and that's how you get in a group, bud. And it ain't the other way. It ain't. You know, it it's not that you can just be. I guess you could be born into it, but you don't just flop there and say, "Hey, I'm." Michael and I'm in your group. I've got two ducks in the back of my truck. It's way more difficult than that. That's the truth. That's the truth. Yeah. One of the things that like when I first started my first dog, I showed up to an, do you guys have Nara down here much? Have you heard of Nara? I've heard of it. Yeah. Nara was, um, let's see. It was like the first hunt test ever. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read a little, I'm not educated on it. Yeah. So I had a NARA club right in my hometown, and here's how I did it. There was one guy, he was the ringleader, and he carried himself well, and then I watched his dogs run, and I was like, that's the kind of dog I'd want to own. How did he get there? How many dogs has he done? And it turns out he's been doing it for 40-plus years, and these are, you know, all of them are at the top of the NARA and tons of points. It'd be like your grand hunting retriever champion with a thousand points. Master National Hall of Fame. He had it in the NARA world. And I just, you just observed. I just sat back and watched and said, that person's dog is dog. I don't want to own that. That person's dog, I don't want to own that. So when they're spewing off advice in the gallery, not who I want to listen to. But that guy, when he spoke, I listened. And when he asked me to ride around in his truck as we were doing setups, I listened. I took, I soaked it all in. When he invited me to his property, I went. It was awesome. So that's kind of the advice I would give people is like, to your point, yeah, get out there and help and be a valuable member of the group and you'll get invited back. But when you're trying to figure out if this is the group you want to be in, look at the dogs, look how they treat the dogs look at oh, sure yeah look at their level of patience look like is this who you want to emulate and does that dog look like what you want your dog to look like and if it is soak that up if the other well, four- we've got two or three women bob in our group yeah we shouldn't just- i knew i knew they were patient when i first you know when i when i saw that <laughs> no i'm joking that was aimed at Kelly Hall. So, <laughs> hey, what about you when you were starting out? You know, you started out and you said you ran HRC started. You know, what was that like? I mean, f- four and a half years ago, probably. And a younger guy saying, I don't know what I'm doing. Here I am with these people. Uh, I just, I can kind of, I've always kind of been able to jump in anywhere and just navigate my way and figure it out. And I think when I went and ran that test, I had no clue what I was getting. It. I mean, I had no idea about anything. Saw people with dog trucks rolling in, and I was like, "What is going on here?" But so when I, I and it was eye opening to me. But when I met Michael, I knew that's when I was on the train of I want to train my dog. I want to get more into this. But I didn't know about a club. I, I mean, I didn't know the first thing about anything. And Michael had told me, kind of was like, "Well, I've got a training group. If you want to come out and train with us one day, let me know." And so got back from. Shaw shot him a text and he said we're training Wednesday and I was like well I'll be there went out there and and met met the rest of the guys that we all trained with and and just 
kind of, for me, just kind of made the best of the opportunity that I had and, and learned a lot. And Tony Hartnett was, I talked about him earlier. He's got, taught me a lot. And when we got out there, he was showing me some dogs and teaching me stuff because I didn't know anything. And I said, well, I want a dog like that. I said, that's, that's what I'm looking for. And, and since then kind of going back, you know, figuring out who works best in the training group and who doesn't, it's just, I think it's a lot of one, you know, you got to have everybody getting along, but two, it's, you know, I look at people's dogs a lot. You get a dog that comes out the truck, tail tucked between their legs, doesn't seem that excited, having problems with them. And it's sort of, uh, and you see that consistently. I think that's more of a reflection on the handler or the owner of that, of that. And you look at some of these dogs that hop out the truck and they want to go. And I was like, well, that's, that's what you got to teach them. And I think, people that have the dogs like that are the people for me, at least I want to be around because they have dogs that are wanting to work. Not that, not dogs that are willing to work, but dogs that are wanting to work and learning to instill that in a dog. Cause all of these dogs you're buying with solid pedigrees, they've all got a motor in them. They, they all want to do it. It's, it's about what you do with it. It's about how you build it and install the foundation in that dog on what they want to do. Every dog's going to reach their maximum potential at some point, but it's how much can you bring out of it? Yeah. You have a dog that, that kind of walks out there on blinds or a dog that's hard charging. And not, not every dog's going to be hard charging, but you can tell when a dog's enjoying itself. I agree. All right, let's, uh, let's, get, into, let's get into the whistles, man. So like I said in the beginning of the podcast, I think you sent me one a long time ago. I mean, it's been a year plus. That it's I've been, been a, it's been a year now. Yeah. A year and a couple of weeks. And I immediately switched over and I'm trying to think of how I want to describe it because when I tell people what they should get for a whistle, I don't like the British one where it's very light and low and that's fine if you're running a 60 yard blind and maybe in the wood duck hole, but if they're running through water, if the wind's whipping, that dog is not hearing it, and I will hold my ground on that. I don't like the ones with the little P in it that'll trill and stick, because it'll be like, tweet, and stick, and you're getting inconsistent sound and an inconsistent blast out to the dog, and so forever... I've had, and you could get a loopy sit out of that. Yeah, it, it just sure, but you just it sucks. Don't buy one. Mm-hmm. All right, <laughs> yeah, don't buy one. I always have leaned towards the peeless whistle because it creates a consistent blast, and depending on how much pressure I put into it, stopping it with your tongue, you can have a sharp blast, you can have a long blast. You can have a light blast when they're real up close. You don't want to intimidate them. You can finesse that whistle a little bit differently and work it where all the other ones are TBD, to be determined on what's coming out. You guys developed this. Maybe you can describe it to people, what it's made out of, how it's shaped, and the benefits of it. And while you're doing that, I'm going to go to the bathroom. McGee, I'll let you talk about, you talk about what it's made of and that kind of. Okay, you want to talk about the benefits of it? Yeah, whatever. Whatever you don't cover, I'll get it. All right. Well, the sort of sort of what it's made of, and this all started, I think it took us two years to really develop it. And the whole inspiration behind it was is we'd go out to hunt test, field trials, training a lot, and seeing people show up with something different every time. Nobody really likes what they have. And there's people sold on one thing or another, but no one's like, this is what you want right here. You see, well, I'm trying this one today. I'm trying this one today. And really, really wanted to make something that this is really nice. And this works the way that you want it to. And you're getting the results out of it that you want to. (laughs) So we went and designed it and messed around with a lot of different configurations and, and angles of how the whistles inserted and the foot and the, uh, and the flute of it, everything, and kind of found where this you can it sounds the best. It the you don't have to put too much airflow in it, but you still have you still feel that pressure. Also, big thing was how's it sit in your mouth? We wanted to make it light. You know, if you got a dog that's running really hard, 
you got to sit that dog quick and he takes the wrong cast. You got to be, and you want to use a verbal on your cast. You got to be able to sit him quick after to correct that. So that was a big thing. Just wanted to sit in people's mouth and went through, we went and found uh so it was 3d printing, um, trying a bunch of different things and realized that to get the quality that we wanted, we needed to, go to manufacturing and and get it really done and we went through a bunch of different material options were between this is going to be a lot more rigid it's going to be a lot harder to break but it has this much extra weight and sits in your mouth this way to where this is lighter it breaks more and kind of found a happy medium in that process of of you're getting everything out of it also one thing we kind of figured out is the material affects the sound a lot the material, the, the plastic that you use affects the sound. The the vibration from you blowing in that whistle on that plastic will affect the sound that comes out of it. And so kind of went and found, and it, it took a while, but went and found what was going to work best for us and, and wanted something that was going to be consistent every single time that you blew into it. We didn't, you know, we didn't want to go out there where, you blow on it three times and then you get that really high note and you pull it out of your mouth and you're kind of like, what was that? You got to blow gunk out of it or, or whatever. We wanted it to be consistent every single time that you use it so that when you, when you are using it, you know what you're going to get. You don't have to worry about the tools that you're using. All you have to do is worry about your dog. All right. Head over to LoneDuckOutfitters.com. Anything you need to get you and your dog ready for duck season, whether it be more bumpers, a new e-collar, some launchers, the dummy launchers by DT, wingers, anything you can think of, you can find at LoneDuckOutfitters.com to get you and your dog ready for duck season. Baby. I'll jump in and, and add to that. I have to have it around my neck for 6 to 12, 14 hours a day. And so when you talked about the weight of it and how it is light that's huge also it's like it's almost like raising up a shotgun and how it balances and how, and you were saying how it fits in your mouth and how you hold it in your mm -hmm. teeth and still talk and you can cast and you can talk, you know deal with it while it's in your teeth if it's too heavy it's going to lean a lot more forward which is pointing that blast downward instead of out as well as it's just heavy to have in your mouth or around your neck. Mm -hmm. So I find that the material it's made out of and the, the lightness of it is extremely helpful when you're doing it a ton. I like that you have the rubber gasket around yep. it. In, I was going to say that thing, I've always seen people put them on whistles. And I was like, we got to put that on there. So if we're going to try and make something nice, we got to do it all the way. And I couldn't, tell you how many people have reached out to us either of wanting another one saying just to tell me that they like it or whatever it may be saying great things about that rubber mouthpiece on it i think that was i think that's a big game changer and also part of the thing was is, is you know you can say it's tooth protection where one it's protecting the whistle a little bit we, we get biting down on it but you get running a test and your dog gets little squirrely and you're biting on that thing you start biting on it a little bit harder and uh uh it might chip your tooth yeah dude nah, i couldn't agree more i think it's i think it's the what is it goldilocks and the three bears is just right it's not too heavy it's not too light it's loud i mean i think for the in just throwing it out there because most of the people who listen to this aren't doing 400 yard blinds most of the people are duck dogging and hunt testing and a little bit of field trialing but the kicker is what i want everybody to remember is if you're going to make a correction on a dog for not stopping on a whistle you have to think about a few things does it hear me does it see me like before I make a correction on anything, does it hear me? Does it see me or does it not understand? Well, blowing a whistle, that's a, does it hear me? So is it windy? Is the wind blowing towards me? Crosswind at my back. That's going to affect what that dog hears down, you know, down the range. Or if it's running water and it's splashing through that water, that's going to affect how much it can hear because it's making its own noise. It's huffing and puffing. It's, splashing running through reeds and grasses 
Hardest whistle to hear, hands down, is running water. You know, on a water blind, Mm -hmm. you know how they set them up where you got to, you about have to have that whistle in the running water. And, you know, you want something that you can get rough with, you know, in those times. And I feel like our whistle, you can get rough with it when you need to, and you can get cute with it when you need to as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hunt with mine. I've got mine on my, my duck call lanyard and it's, some may say it's overkill it's a big whistle to hunt with and it can get really loud but i i I, you're able to put very little pressure into it and have a nice sound that comes out that's not blowing up your duck hole and and you don't have to put a whole lot into it to be able to get that dog's attention at 20 yards whereas i think some of these whistles you got to put that back pressure into it and you have to get that loud sound out of it just to make it work Yep. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll add for folks who may or may not have experienced this, but when you switch whistles, it's going to mess with your dog. If mm-hmm. you're using an Acme, whatever, and you switch to this, it's going to take a little bit of time for that dog to adjust. That's just is what it is. But to McGee's point, like if I'm hunting a wood duck hole and I need to boop my whistle and cast, I'm only, I don't want to blast the whole wood duck hole with my whistle blast. So I can get light with it, but I hunted in Missouri this year, running water, rice field. And my dog was 150 yards out humming. And if I didn't have this whistle, I wouldn't have been able to get that stop. I mean, it just wouldn't have happened with my old one. I I mean, it may, I I wouldn't say it wouldn't have happened, but I'd have been and try and have her catch it in the middle of a splash so you know it it definitely is a valuable valuable tool how did you decide to start this business what what made you passionate about building it kind of what made Um, passionate mcgee did it yeah yeah he was getting ready to but one thing that that was you know the bob that i've seen with it is is it is a I feel like it's a good product. And when McGee brought the final one to the shop and he said, here's the whistles that, you know, we had injection molded or whatever it is. He he said, listen to this and see what you think. And he blew on it. I said, that's it. Yep. That's it. I finally heard it. You know, that's- I've heard the sound reproduced that I've heard come from a green monster. Yep. You know, I ain't gonna beat around the bush. The green monster still king. You know, but but these whistles were reproducing a similar sound to that green monster, that two tone big blast that you hear, you know, on a that the whole gallery turns around and look to see why you got that big whistle in the four series, you know. I'm also gonna stop um, you quick because that just also put a thought in my head. It also doesn't blast your ears. So right. You, Projects the sound away from it. Sound out versus out towards your face and your eardrums so you as the handler aren't getting lit up by your whistle that i had i had a buddy make me a whistle one time like try this and i used it once i'm like nope see you later dude i mean i deaf imagine when when, when we were making prototypes we ran into that and i was like man this thing hurts yeah yeah no and and it we were bob we had them all in um we were building them in my plumbing shop over in Graham and my mom uh, is in there at the front desk and a couple other ladies and we're in there testing these whistles. And every time we blow up, they're like, Oh God. Oh, awesome. Well, you can definitely tell you guys are passionate about the dogs, about learning, about being competitive, which I love. I mean, that's the fun stuff, man. It's just out there. Like, one of the things that I hate it, I love that we talked a lot about amateurs. I love it. But one of the things that I, I am going to take a two second note and say, we're all the same. I started out as a 23 year old with a yellow lab that didn't know Jack. And it just so happens that now I do it for a living, but we all started the same. So in the grand cool. scheme of things, we're all doing it for the same reasons. Everybody is still learning and getting better and finessing things and challenging themselves and their dogs. But I can tell you, you two dudes are passionate about the sport 
and about your dogs that you have and the competitions and duck hunting, which is fantastic. But this product that you brought to market, I, I won't, unless you stop making them, I'm not switching. Well, so, we appreciate that for sure. Yeah, and, and a lot, you know, and, and I told McGee when he first started this idea, I said, you know, hopefully we make a lot of good friends out of this, make some money. And I said, but I don't want to lose any. That was our deal. Is, <laughs> you know, we didn't want to put an inferior product on the market. And then he's not going to field trials. I am. He's hunting in Argentina and Kansas and all these other places. I'm going to the field trials and I'll see these guys. And, you know, a lot of people say, I really like it. I've had several that say my dog won't. And I'm not a PR guy, you know, uh, but I had a guy come up to me and say, you know, I wanted to like your whistle, but my dog won't sit on it. And I said, well, from the looks of that land blind, your dog won't sit on anything. I don't, I don't know. You could have <laughs> shot a shotgun and it sat down right there. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so yeah, back to your point, it, it, you know, it, it has been fun. It's been a, it's been a good time. And I get that Bob, that we're all the same. And the only difference, I guess, would be if if somebody was actually employed through somebody else, and it was a just a nine to five, or a, not in a training scenario, just a a five to nine type job, I guess is how you put it. If you're a dog trainer, it's five in the morning till nine at night. But we've met a lot of cool people and got you know we we do like the product. But another thing I was going to tell you, we do have bumpers now, mm-hmm. and we've got the coveted pink bumper that everybody's wanting and and look at our website you know go to it we're we're working on a retired gun that'll be a we get that thing going bob i'll send you one and we'll have a whole nother conversation about it so that's super cool yeah it's it's really cool we've spent a lot of time working on it and it's been a work in progress but hopefully gonna finish it up here soon but it's uh it's a piece of work it just it kind of goes back to highlight the whole reason we started this. It's just wanting to make products that are going to meet the expectations that you want your dogs to meet. That that and I, I think that's the biggest thing because I couldn't tell you how many times I've been in the field using stuff from all different brands. You're fixing this, you make shift in that, and it's it's some something's got to bring higher quality. I so say we come out here, we ask our dogs to do all this work and do it. And, and realistically, outside of training, you want your dog to do everything flawlessly. I said, well, you got to give them the tools to be able to do that. I said, if you're going to have to mess with stuff all the time to be able to get your dog out in the field, that's cutting into your training. And, the, and if you want your dog to be the best it can, you got to have more time training. Mm-hmm. And especially for Michael, who's rough on things, he, you know, he's at home fixing something fixing something yeah. every couple of days that he's beat yeah, up or yeah. whatever. If it's, it's going to get broke, Bob, I'm going to break it. But, um, <laughs> There's a guarantee behind that. But, you and, know, and, a lot of the products that McGee and I have had conversation about recently is it's all due to replacing health. You know, we're having so much trouble finding people that will come out, throw birds, even if you pay them. You know, these kids aren't wanting to do it anymore. But if our products are basically – you know, what products I'm seeing come to the table are to try and replace people in the field that aren't available. And, and, and that's another struggle with amateur groups, especially if it's one or two of them, Yeah, you know, is having somebody to throw the birds. But, but anyway, I hope the retired gun thing's a success and, and everybody loves it. But until it's right, we won't put it out there, mm-hmm. buddy. I can promise you that. Yeah, because my Michael and I are kind kind of on the same page as everything. Neither of us are necessarily salespeople. We just we want to make something that's going to sell itself. I don't think I've reached out to anybody and said, "Please use this. I'm gonna send this to you. Please support us." Yada yada. Just, hey, if you like it, great. Say something nice about us if you'd like. And that's kind of been my whole mentality behind everything. Is wanting to make a product that's going to speak for itself. I'm not one to, Hey, can you please do this and put this out here and and use it? Even though you might not like it, if you don't like it, say you don't like it. That's, I mean, everybody's got their opinion, but just wanted to build stuff that we're proud to put our name behind. Good for you. I, I respect the heck out of that. I mean, that's, 
you remind me of me 10, 10, 15 years ago, man, like hustling, building something that you believe in, in an industry that you love. And again, the product itself to me is, is the best one I, I can use. So I appreciate it. We're going to, you know, this, this is a little deal that we've been working on, but we want to have it on the Lone Duck Outfitters website. But until then, where can people find it and find you guys? Barrasoutdoor.com. Very so good. So there you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Reach out to us. Give us a call, whatever you want to do. Yeah, yeah, dude. Well, we're gonna. Yeah, play. you won't find me. Hey, Bob, you won't find me in any of those places. I'll either be in Emporia <laughs> or Shiraz or down at the Bakers or over at Leon's. I won't be on, at any of those locations. If you're looking for Michael, <laughs> you're stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, you Listen. better be there at seven o'clock in the morning because that's when we leave. <laughs> I love it, guys. I will put the link to your website and Instagram and Facebook in the show notes, guys. If you enjoyed this episode. If you're looking at adding a new whistle, maybe your dog's about to start mini T and T pattern. Don't start with something else. Get you one of these blue ribbon whistles. I support it. I use it. And we're going to be adding it to my my website because I want everybody to have one. It's just great. You, you won't be disappointed. So thank you, got- you for those kind words, Bob. We yeah, appreciate that. My advice to people out there when they're considered buying a product, buy from the people that give back to our sport, go to the master national, look at the people that are there trying to, trying to develop product ones that are given to your clubs to give away as raffle items and support those people, guys, that those are the people that, you know, are supporting us and making all this possible and just do business with people that does business with you. So that I a hundred percent agree with. Yep. Support those. Keep Keep growing the sport. That's yeah, right. And just know we're grateful. When you when you do buy from us, we're grateful. Absolutely. Well, McGee, Michael, we that did was it. fun, man. Appreciate it, Bob. Thank you guys yeah. for your time. Everybody who tuned in, I want to say thank you again for, for choosing to spend an hour and change with us and listening to the episode. Check them out. We'll catch you on the flip side. See ya. Hey, patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. It's a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in, let's go, join the community. We appreciate it and we'll see you there. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.